Questions, if any? Questions, complaints, rebukes? Okay, I'll try and get this going. <laughs> what is a monastic Christian? I did not pick up what that was. Is it monastic? Yeah, yeah, monastic Christian. is just, uh, if you've ever heard of a monastery before, oh. it's kind of like uh, these wannabe priests live in rocks away from society, kind of like uh, the Amish. But my, my point in saying that was <clears throat> that uh, God, ha- God desires that we would be with one another as a church, uh, you know, similar to, to what we're doing now, talking about uh, Scripture and encouraging one another and correcting one another when our thinking is wrong, rather than being out, you know, in, in the rocks, uh, kind of gazing at our navel, convincing ourselves that we're right about all of our presuppositions. Well, you gave us a lot of information today and especially hit me. I always think, you know, actions are, are, speak louder than words. I always use that for an excuse. So I'm kind of feeling guilty here (laughs) about not being bold. (laughs) So you kind of, kind of threw that at me and I thank you for a nice message and all the information, I'm sure that took you a long time to gather, so thank you. You're welcome. Jeremy. You mentioned that uh, there's a verse that some people's Bibles might have and Mm -hmm. others might not have, and you you, you promised you'd address that here, so. Right, right. Um... Well, yeah, the, the ESV, uh, I, I know that King James and the New King James Version has uh, verse 37 listed. Um, and there's a group of manuscripts, I think, uh, the Alexandrian, the Byzantine, uh, that includes this verse. Uh, but those manuscripts are, uh, you could say, younger than other manuscripts that have been discovered uh, of the New Testament. Um, leading to the the conclusion that uh, it wasn't in the original uh, or the autograph of uh, the New Testament. Um, now, it's, it's not just that it was, it's not in older manuscripts. Uh, the language uh, isn't consistent with the language that Luke uses. Uh, if you notice here in... Let's see. Uh, verse 35, uh, we have the good news of Jesus, the good news about Jesus. And so in this, in this passage, <clears throat> the way that Luke refers to the Christ is Jesus. He doesn't mention Christ. He doesn't even mention Lord. Uh, but then in verse 37, what's included in uh later manuscripts includes Jesus Christ and even Son of God. So the consistency with the, with the language used doesn't make any sense. Um, and what's, what the, 
An- another note I guess I could make is that it could have been just a, a scribal addition uh, because most baptisms in the New Testament or in the early church included a profession of faith when that baptism was done. So uh, the, the scribe could have thought, let's just say, in the late second century, well, everybody else in the church that I attend, they give a, a profession of faith when, when they're baptized. I do believe that Jesus is, is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't see this in this passage, so I think it would be helpful to just add that. I think that's about exhausts all the things that I have in my mind. So about the whole. Thank you. Yes, Lee. Well, we still have the six people listening to the podcast. I have a child that recently that had uh, in the past year or so professed to believe in Jesus, but I've hesitated on his baptism. Am I in disobedience for that? Wanting to make sure it's genuine. I'll field that one. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that children, I mean, you'll also notice um, myself and even Pastor Daniel, I don't think any of us have baptized children. Um, because when one, what the New Testament links and what, and what Mitchell pointed out is that baptism is your entrance into the church and your own standing. You're giving a public testimony. And so I hope that my children's profession of faith is sincere, I don't think any of them are ready to stand on their own two feet in the church. I, I think it's good for them to be under the umbrella of my household. And, that, and In other words, to put it really simply, they'd be open to church discipline at that point, as far as, as, far as I can do the math. Like they're saying to the church, here is my confession of faith. Treat me as a brother or sister, fully. So, no, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong in parents watering, cultivating that, and, and discerning when they're able to give that testimony. I mean, there's a sense in which in the Old Testament, children can't give testimony at all. So I'm not saying children can't be baptized, but in my thinking, at the very least, when they're ready to do it, they're standing on their own legs in front of the body. They're saying, I am a brother. I am a sister. Treat me that way. Interact with me that way. I'm, I'm all for making sure they understand what they're doing, understanding what they mean, so I, I would not think you're in disobedience. Um, if you are, then, then I, I am as well. So it's more in that it's uh, also a sign that they're willing to fall under that church discipline, is what you're saying? Well, it's the public. There's a sense in which you're calling people. When we, when we gather for a, a wedding, right, um, the people are witnesses to the vows. And the reason why baptism is done publicly is the same thing. I'm making this confession. Hold me to it. So it... it it's the full package. I mean, exhort me, encourage me, weep with me, pray with me. One of those things is Jesus saying, if your brother sins, go rebuke him. You know? And yet I would want as a parent to be able to mediate that. If, if my son wronged you, I, I would feel that I could at least say, talk to me, I'll deal with him. Right? In a way that, no, if, if he's your brother, I think you'd have direct, immediate ability to go talk to him. And I, I don't think I'd be able to stand in the way. You say, no, he's my brother. Jesus tells me, go talk to my brother privately. So there's a sense in which God's given in the family an umbrella of protection. I think about like a nursery growing up faith that, yeah, I hope it's genuine, but I, I don't think 
I, I don't think my kids, if they understood, that's what they would be doing. Like, you're standing up as a young man. You're standing up as a young woman. You are calling on these people to hold you to this. You're telling, you're identifying yourself as a disciple, and you're saying, interact with me that way. Yeah, I don't think any of my kids would want to do that. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But that, that's, that's my thinking through this. If anyone else wants to add anything to that, they're, they're more than welcome to. Is there any significance to the age of bar mitzvah? Um, bar mitzvah is extra biblical. It takes place around 13. It's possible the tradition of bar mitzvah or that notion is already in place because Luke tells us that when Jesus is taken to the temple in Luke 2, he's 12, which, if that tradition is in place, would mean this is his last coming to the temple before he becomes a man, a young man. It's not conclusive by any stretch, but we certainly know that the Jews, um, certainly by this late Second Temple period, are viewing 13 as the age of entering into young manhood. Um, So that could be tied to it as well. I mean, it would be very unusual for a child to give public testimony, um, but also understand once they hit their teens, they're viewed as young men and young women. My question was, is to uh, be the reading of the Ethiopian, and I, I said someone died. Is that what you said about what he was reading? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Isaiah 53. And there were two blanks. Yeah, I, I didn't. I'm sorry. There, I That's the, one you, the only one you missed. You did pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> we, we like our blanks to be filled up by the end of the day. So, I, so I've heard. Yeah, it was Isaiah 53. Yeah, it it was pretty redundant. The the blank and the reference, yep. Yep. Yes, Linda. No, you can, yeah, you go ahead. Okay. So mine is, um, you mentioned that um, the eunuchs were not allowed to be part of the assembly, but the text says, you know, that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Mm-hmm. So where was he going to worship if he wasn't allowed to be part of the assembly? Yeah, you could you could be in the court of the Gentiles and it could still be considered worship. Okay. But uh But so there So he just wasn't part of the what the Jews would consider the assembly then? Yeah. It was a separate it was the Gentile gathering, not the Jewish gathering. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I do have one uh question. Or maybe comment. Uh, you said there's no examples in the New Testament of someone not being baptized, and I thought of the thief on the cross, mm-hmm. not that that should be 
yeah. affect what you were saying yeah. in any way, but maybe it's something that should be addressed. Yeah, it, I would say the thief on the cross would be the exception, not the rule. So, uh, you know, so uh, in in large part, uh, if someone's not hanging on a tree, you know, minutes away from dying. Right, there just wasn't time to be right, baptized. Right. And there are other cases like a car accident that... Yeah. Someone right. comes right. to saving faith as they're dying. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. yeah and if it, there's time. And it's important to remember <clears throat> that baptism is not a prerequisite to be saved. Right. Yes. Ba- baptism has nothing to do with justification. Yeah. It's just a it's just a sign of obedience. Yes. So uh, we have every every uh, sign uh, or every we could just rightly assume that if the thief on the cross wasn't there and uh, let's say he he was uh, somebody in this city of Samaria where Philip was earlier in chapter 8, he would have been baptized. Yes. So. Okay, thank yeah, you. Yes, and, and the only other point I'd add is this. He was never given a command, and the Lord, who had the right and the authority and who did authorize his disciples with that command, simply doesn't call on him to do it. So he's completely obedient and completely faithful. The Lord does not say to him, um, you're in trouble, you're going to need to pull really hard, get off this cross and go get baptized. He, yeah, he's faithful with what he has in front of him. And, ju- and just as the Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath, he can dislodge the Sabbath or dislodge or just make void the dietary laws uh, uh, so he can, you know, choose what. <laughs> what is the standard of obedience for for this man on, on the cross? Yes, Patrice. Um. This is, I guess, sort of a piggyback off of Scott's question. I was baptized when I was a child, um, although I lived a life of outright rebellion up until kind of my late 20s. Um, Would that baptism have been sufficient since I thought I was a Christian, but kind of off and on didn't live like I was a Christian? So would I need to be baptized what I would have needed to be baptized again. Um, well, what I, what I can say, okay, Greg, would you like to answer it? I would say that if Patrice has any doubt that the baptism that she had was insufficient, that she be baptized again. And that would... I mean, I don't know of anything that, I don't know of any of us in here that can magically understand whether her profession of faith prior to her baptism was proper. Uh, but if she is questioning it, then then she should she should do it again. She has done it again, just to let you know. But. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was, I'm sorry, I, I I forgot that last part. I I did eventually come to an understanding that I needed yeah. to be baptized again, but. I was just thinking about it, right. you know, as Scott was asking that question, like, 
I, I felt like it was necessary, but just thinking about whether or not that was sufficient again. I don't know. Just yes. thinking. We, we do have one biblical text where we have a rebaptism, so there is textual warrant for this. Um, we, we don't believe baptism itself does anything. Um, so in churches where they baptize infants, and they generally won't rebaptize because in that instance, it's not saying anything about the child. It's saying something more about the parents. The, the notion of infant baptism is more claiming covenant promises to the children. But in our instance for baptism, it's, 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 I, the wedding yesterday I think is helpful. Baptism is to salvation like a wedding ring is to a wedding covenant. Simeon and Julia were married when they made their oaths to each other. It would just be an awfully strange marriage if there wasn't a wedding ring. And if Simeon takes his ring off today when he takes a shower or something, he doesn't stop being married. And if he never put a ring on her finger, he would not. It would just be a pretty strange marriage, that's all. Pretty strange wedding ceremony. Well, in the same way, um, the ring doesn't make anyone married. It doesn't accomplish a marriage. Um, the baptism is the sign of what you're saying Christ has done. He has cleansed me. I was filthy with sin, and he has cleansed me. I've, he died on my behalf, and I'm identifying with him in his death. And so you're doing this physical sign that indicates what you're saying spiritually took place. There is one example in Acts 19 where people who were baptized under John's baptism were re-baptized. None of the disciples who partook of John's baptism were re-baptized by Jesus. And the key point for that was they had not been baptized since they came to faith in Jesus. In Acts 19, it happened that while the apostles were at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Then into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism, which is exactly, if you go to John 1, what the apostles were all baptized under. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they had received John's baptism of repentance, but they did not know the one who was to come. And then upon believing, Paul baptizes them again. So there's your biblical precedent for, I, didn't, I wasn't a true believer. Okay, then I think Paul would rebaptize you. So I just wanted to back up yeah. what you were yeah. saying with, with, a, with a textual point. And so the issue is, are you confident you've obeyed the Lord's command since becoming a believer? Um, we've, we've had some adults here who have been rebaptized much, much later in life, and I've been humbled by their faithfulness and their humility. Um, I'm sure those are not easy things to do. Anyway, I'll give it back to you now, Mitchell. Yeah, yeah and, it's, and, I, and I think it's good to point out that just because we see new converts being baptized doesn't mean if you're past the stage of being a new convert now, you know, it's, the baptism is restricted for you. Uh, you can be somebody who's 30 years into your walk with Christ and you can get baptized. <laughs> um, so, yes. Um, my experience doesn't necessarily speak to this, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on it. Um, I struggled 
for years with confidence in my salvation. And I'm curious through this dialogue about this, what, how does this speak to our children if they're hearing the word, specifically uh, this message, and they're questioning, Dad, Mom, why I've professed my faith, but I'm being called to get baptized, what would, what would our response to this reason for not letting them get baptized, would that cause them um, to question that decision for themselves, and maybe that's good. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking through that process. I would hate to instill um, question on their decision. Can I, can I field this again? Yep. Sorry. Yep. I just recently had a conversation. He's not here with my oldest boy, similar to this. His, it started with, Dad, why don't I take communion? Um, and so I started by explaining to him what communion symbolized. And the two rites that the Lord gave us, one marks the beginning of something, baptism, and one marks the continuance or the sustenance of something. So it's a meal. We keep getting nourished and strengthened by Christ. So we repeat the one, but not the initiatory rite. And so I walked him through that, and I said, do you think that describes who you are? And he said, I don't know, maybe. And I said, okay, cool. That's great. And we've talked about this, but... Part of what I've told him is, look, God's put you in my home, and, and you're going to believe what I tell you. I mean, if you tell your kids Santa Claus exists, they're going to believe Santa Claus exists. Your, our children will, at least at the earliest stage, pretty much without exception, always believe what we tell them. And it doesn't mean that that faith and that belief isn't real, but it doesn't mean that it is, right? And so what I put in front of my kids is when you're, con- you're looking to yourself, you're looking for the confirming, biblically confirming signs. I mean, probably First John is the best book to read through for multiple signs, but they'd include things like conviction, confession of sin, a desire for God's word, a love for the people of God, um, prayer, talking to the Lord, things like that. These are the accompanying signs, the fruit of the Spirit, Right? And so I'm telling them, look, when you're ready, when you want to, I, I would not turn someone away because they're too young. If, if a, a f- four-year-old child said, Pastor Jeremy, I need to be obedient to my Lord, I just want to make sure they have their eyes wide open and they knew what they were doing. Now, you can read Fox's Book of Martyrs. There are young children who stood up to inquisitors boldly. I have no doubt. So it's not that there's a magic age. It's simply, would you like some more time in the greenhouse of your parents' home? Or do you want to stand on your own two feet and speak to this body and identify yourself a brother or sister and, and call yourself? If, if they said, that's what I want to do, more power to you. I, so it's not that there's a magic age number. Um, but uh, in my case, my, my son is glad to have more time to sort of grow and test and see. And um, that's at least how I've handled it. I don't, I don't know where, where you're at. But I, I think letting them know, no, God put you in our family for a reason, and, and you're sitting with us in church, you're, you're part of our family, you're part of our household, you're believing what we're telling you, that's great. Continue to grow, continue to stand up on your own two feet spiritually. And just, if you're confident, if you want to do that, i, I got to stop talking now. Join up. <clears throat> I'm going to change it off baptism, if that's okay. Um, something that I struggle with is actually part of your application piece, telling the gospel to all of those that you meet. I think the obviously the biggest place for most of us is probably at work for that. 
Um, so I do, if they ask, um, I, they know I'm a Christian, obviously, and I kind of talk about it. But are you in disobedience if you're not immediately discussing or proclaiming the gospel to everyone you talk to at work? No, uh, and the reason I say that is because you should uh, <clears throat> remember your job description. They're paying you to, I don't know, I don't know what you do, but you know, send emails. I dig trenches and shovel stones. So, if if my pursuit of telling somebody about Christ is an obstacle to me actually achieving what I'm primarily supposed to be doing for that particular company, then I'm walking in disobedience and. You know, that might sound a little bit weird, but are you saying that proclaiming Christ is disobedience? Yeah, in that context it is. Uh, so there has to be a lot of wisdom, I think, exercised in the workplace uh, because I've been in situations where conversations go on for 30 or 40 minutes and then my supervisor walks up to me a few days later and says, you need to cut the conversations down. Um, so uh, I don't necessarily think it's a situation where <clears throat> it's cut and dry. Only if they ask, can I say something? Um, I mean, th there, there are sometimes situations in which you just have to uh, speak the truth uh, when nobody is asking for it. And uh, I don't know if you have any... Further thoughts, Jeremy? I think the key is a readiness. I mean, the, the danger is readiness and unreadiness externally can look identical. But if we're, if we're, so the other New Testament expression, seasoning your words with salt so that you're ready at any moment to give an answer for the reason for the hope within you. Um, you're looking for, you're alert for, you want to, and you're looking for a legitimate opening, because there may also be policies at work. We don't want you talking about divisive topics, no politics, no religion. You guys don't talk about that in our workplace. And if you receive a paycheck, you're honor-bound and integrity-bound to honor those restrictions or say, I can't honor those restrictions and quit. But it, it lacks integrity to receive the pay and not abide by the policy. But you're looking for those opportunities. You're trying to make those opportunities. And... If you're doing that, you're being faithful. And if you're doing that, God will give you the wisdom to know when those opportunities appear. That, that's what I am always praying for is, Lord, I don't want to miss an opportunity. I don't yeah. want to be so distracted by the world that two days go by and I haven't even thought about that. So that that's all I'd add. And, oh. um, I was just going to share a, a, an example or story that, that has kind of shed some light on this subject for me. Um, at our church in Kentucky, we had a family that, um, were missionaries, a couple um, in a country, and uh, they had traveled uh, on furlough several years in a row, heard the same presentation um, from them, and then one Sunday, I got it. Um, they, uh, you know, have jobs as teachers and a scuba instructor. Um, that is their primary job in this country, overseas. Um, but in my perspective, what I'm seeing is that they're missionaries, Right? So when I'm sitting here in the States watching them give a presentation, 
They're talking about the people they're meeting. They're talking about the relationships they're building. They're talking about praying with these people, inviting them to their house, having dinner. Um, and it was like, aha, why, why don't I look at my job as a means of fostering that relationship? Yeah, maybe not distracted from my day-to-day, eight-to-five work, but if I can go in with the purpose of building relationships um, in hopes that at some point we can invite them over for a meal or catch them in a side conversation somewhere or interacting with the janitors they're walking down, you know, there's a hundred people that we, we meet on a regular basis within the confines of our work, and um, their primary purpose in being there was to evangelize and share the gospel. But they had eight to five jobs in this other country that they used as the, the literal means to that end. And so it, for me personally, it was just a light went off. I was like, wow, this is, this is fantastic. We always think of foreign missionaries, but man, we need to be domestic missionaries, I think was the take home for me as well. That if I just took the perspective of looking at my job as an opportunity to build those relationships with the purpose of advancing the gospel, I think that's what really... Now, I'm Lord, not at all good at that, but we're working yeah. on it, right? And similar to what you're, you're saying, those opportunities that we can seize are break times. I've always been taught, you just don't talk about work during your break time. Well, what should you talk about? <laughs> just try and spark conversations about things that matter and, you know, inviting people over to your house and, you know, I've, I've tried to, and nobody has taken me up on my offer, but, but if I talk to somebody about biblical truth and I say, maybe like as they're leaving, hey, I'd really like to talk to you more about this. We can get together for coffee one, one day. And anyways, so Elsa. Yeah, I just want to um, point us back to what Pastor Jeremy has been preaching about. Faith without works is dead. And I think that's where this comes in. If you have the works, people will know you're a Christian. They're going to see you different. And that happened to me in South Africa. Um, one place that I was working at, and it was way not as peace politically incorrect as today, people knew I was a Christian and they'd make fun of me. And I just never stopped being kind and doing good works. And then... One of the gals, her mother was diagnosed with cancer and she came straight to me and asked me to pray for her mother. It's amazing how they know. They will joke with you, they will ridicule you, but as soon as a crisis comes, they know who the Christian is. People really watch you at work. We don't think that, but I've seen that so much. People watch you, they see how you speak in meetings, they read your emails, the way you talk, there are so many ways that you can let people know you, you're not the same as the others. Yeah. Donna, just way in the back. I can't. Well, maybe it's uh, off. Can you hear me now? There we go. Um, I think I shared this in my Bible study, but she just brought that to my mind again. But uh, my other church I used to go to, um, a man got up one Sunday morning. It was a man who was kind of walking away from the Lord, 
And his first words were, I've been watching you. And he continued to tell of all the people that he watched and what they were doing, and it helped to bring him back. So I know actions are louder than words, but I know you have to have the words also, but I think the actions are very important. So I just wanted to share that with you. Sure. I, I, yeah, people want to think, is it speaking or is it actions? They do different things. Um, in Titus 2, um, we, we can't preach the gospel with our lives, but we can dress it up using the language of, of Titus beautifying, 2. Beautifying the gospel in other words. Right. So he says this, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn or dress the doctrine of God our Savior. So you can't communicate the doctrine of God our Savior, but you can make it look attractive, you can make it look beautiful, you can make it look powerful, you can, you, you can dress it up, you can, you can put... And it, it's not that the gospel is not beautiful, but it's more like you can shine spotlights on it and put it on a pedestal and give it a place of prominence where it can be seen, or you can leave it in the dusty you know, closet. That's what our lives and our actions can do and should do. Dressing it up isn't proclaiming it. There's no replacement for proclaiming it, but proclaiming it while your life makes it look ugly just want, makes the world want to call us hypocrites, which from going through Luke with the people Jesus was most provoked and angry at, were the people who claimed yeah. to be religious, and inwardly they were like tombs. Yeah, and you're doing one of two things, like at work or at home, at, at home or anywhere else. <laughs> you're either adorning the gospel or adorning the doctrine of God, or you're preaching the gospel. And... That, that should be a good motivation when we're in the midst of unbelievers. Um, we shouldn't be discouraged because we can't get a word in edgewise and tell them about how their sins can be forgiven. Uh, we should think, well, you know, just like Elsa was saying, the way that I'm treating them is honoring God, uh, and it is putting the gospel on a, on a pedestal. Yes, Jake. So for me, probably different than all of you, I'm a coward. So when, when I'm at work, uh, if I'm not actively thinking about serving and loving the people, sharing the gospel with them, uh, I don't. And every time that I've pray, like actually had a desire to talk with them and prayed for the opportunity and paid attention for those opportunities, God's always provided a way. Um, and the problem is, for me again, um, <clears throat> it's way easier just to keep my head down and do my job. And I can come up with excuses for why it didn't happen, this and that. But the truth is, Whenever I pray for the opportunity and am faithfully seeking to find it, God provides an opportunity. Mm 
So Glenn and I have been praying for a couple that are good friends, and we've been praying for the opportunity, and we're never seeing it. And so I don't know if we're just being cowards or you really do have to, God, blatantly show us the opportunity. We've tried a little bit before and kind of this kind of an attitude. So I don't know. That's, my question is, do you just wait till you recognize the opportunity if you've been praying about it? Or do you just, okay, hang on. Here we go. I don't know. Ron, you have a comment? Well, I think uh, sometimes you may have to create the opportunity. Um, I have a unique advantage because I'm the boss. And so um, always being right is a a distinct advantage. (laughs) Uh, And so a couple weeks ago when I had an all-staff meeting then, I felt... God wanted me to explain to my staff about my health because it's a big concern among all of them. And so didn't know what to do, and God just burdened my heart to not just share my health issues, but also incorporate how he has intervened in them. And so I had a captive audience, and I was able to discuss my medical issues, but also, and more importantly, how God has not just helped me um, physically, but spiritually and emotionally dealing with these. So sometimes you um, ask God for opportunities, but be careful because he'll give them to you. Yep, Jeremy. I'm jumping, I'm jumping in a lot. That's fine. You can tell I miss being in the pulpit. It's been three weeks now. <laughs> so there's one other, one other thing that helped motivate me, because I think Jacob's right. We're, we're cowards. We're afraid. Um, and so one of the things that will press me is a notion, what well, starts in Ezekiel, where God tasks Ezekiel with being a watchman, and he tells him, if you warn the wicked man, and the wicked man is it's in chapter 3 and in chapter 30, Three. Um, if you warn the wicked man, he says, and, and he doesn't listen to you, he shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. If you didn't warn him, sorry, if, if you failed to warn the wicked man, he, he dies for his own sins, but God says to Ezekiel, I'm going to require, you, you didn't warn him. And then he goes on to say, if you do warn him and he doesn't listen to you, he will die for his own sins, but you will have delivered your soul. You're innocent of his blood. So this goes on through all of chapter 3. The Apostle Paul cites this in Acts 18. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the crowds, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they were opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments, shook out his garments, and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. So, one of the things I'll think to myself so, Paul is willing to say, Look, I tried to explain the gospel to you and you didn't want it. I'm innocent. I'm going to go talk to somebody else. But I often wonder myself, thinking, Would I be innocent of this person's blood? Have I even made an attempt? So I don't know how far to go, but it doesn't mean you have to keep banging on their door every single day. Clearly, Paul can say, I told you, you didn't want to hear it, you mocked, you scoffed, I'm innocent. 
But that's one of the questions that will sometimes keep me up at night, <laughs> is am I going to be innocent of these people's blood that God's put in my life? I mean, it's, I'm not going to be held accountable for everybody I never meet, but certainly where I do have opportunities, certainly where um, there isn't an, an availability to do something, I may well be guilty. Of, I mean, not of their sin. They're going to deal with, God's going to deal with them with their own sin, but an, an unfaithfulness on my part. And so Paul brings that notion of Ezekiel into the New Testament in Acts 18. Um, and so that I find helpful as a convicting, goading, pressing forward type of thing when naturally I don't want to speak. You may not find that hard to believe, but um, no, I, I feel that same fear, the same knot in your stomach. I feel, yeah, absolutely. Patrice in the back. And a question, uh, rather a, um, I don't know, just something I appreciate about my husband, is that he is very good and conscious, good at and conscious of utilizing what you call paper missionaries, so a gospel track, um, especially in those instances where you probably will never see that person again. Um, like if we sell something on Facebook or something, we'll try to, you know, as we're exchanging even the funds, like he tells them, like, this is a gift. Like, I want to give this to you. And if you have the time, take it home and we'll write down his information. But um, just as a, like now being at home with Shepherd and not interacting with people as much, I kind of forget about that. But I don't know. I was just thinking about it now that I need to start remembering that I can utilize that when I'm at the grocery store and, you know, if I go to the post office, like, I can use those paper missionaries to, you know, give the gospel to someone in that way when, you know, I don't want to hold up the line, obviously, at Walmart trying to check out. Um, So, anyway, that was just, I guess, an encouragement to utilize those resources as well that are at your disposal. Yeah, there are a lot of avenues of communication that we can take advantage of. I mean, I mentioned Facebook in the message, but uh, obviously there's a lot of uh, coarse language that can be seen in comment threads. Uh, But, I mean, we can, you know, message people for the sake of Christ on on Facebook. It's not a a face-to-face interaction, but but it's kind of the same kind of... uh, method that the Lord is using with his word. It's written, um, and uh, so. I, I think what you're saying, Mitchell, is if you genuinely are willing and want to share the words of life, the Lord will give you avenues to do yeah. that, even if yeah. it's going up on Facebook. Um, we're, we're pretty much out of our time now. I want to thank Mitchell for... Um, for his faithfulness this morning. I want to thank you all for staying and, and the questions. Um, I'm sure Mitchell will stick around a little longer and ask any more questions you may have, but um, let's just close with a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we just, uh, we've just heard a challenging message this morning, and so I pray that you would give us consciences that convict us to act and obey quickly without delay. I pray that you would drive us deeper into your word, that we would 
make time to study and to study richly and to not rest until we have come to what you meant, what you intend your word to mean. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a desire, a conviction, a love of the lost, a, a fear of your displeasure driving us to speak the words of life, to look for opportunities to speak the word of life, to, to scatter the good seed of your gospel abroad, knowing that you are the one who is powerful to make it grow. Lord, we do pray that you would give the increase to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.